you would, let's uh, take our Bibles and if you would turn with me to 1 John, be looking at chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2 uh, this morning. 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. This is the message which we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Father, your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? You promise that just as rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without accomplishing the purpose for which you send them, that so also... Your word goes forth and will not return void. It will accomplish successfully the very purpose for which you send it. And so, Father, we pray that you would do what we cannot do, that you would bear fruit in our lives through your word, that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts and minds to understand your word as it's been written, to believe it, to receive it with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts, and to practice it in our lives, all for the glory of your great name. And help us, we pray, to see Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. August 21st, 2017. Think about where you were on that day. That's a day that will live in infamy, at least in the Hall family. That day, we, like many others across the state, gathered with others to watch the solar eclipse that came through across across the country there and was coming through on August 21st in South Carolina. Uh, We made the decision not to go to Columbia, where my parents live. They had invited us to go to the baseball stadium there and and to watch the solar eclipse uh, from the stadium seats. Instead, we decided to go up to uh, Ridgehaven and uh, watch the eclipse there. So we gathered at Ridgehaven. My parents came with me. There were lots of other folks who had gathered there. And uh, there we were on the 21st of August, and we ascended uh, a high point on the campus there and waited 
with great anticipation to see this, what felt like a once-in-a-lifetime experience of seeing this solar eclipse. And then as we waited, the clouds gathered, they blocked the sun and poured buckets of rain on us for just a little while, but then the clouds remained, and they um, covered our view of the eclipse. We weren't able to see it, yet we still witnessed the effects of the eclipse as the sun hid behind the moon, the sky grew dark, kind of like at dusk, and all of the insects and the birds began their evening chorus. Uh, It was beautiful. It was stunning. I did not expect that part. I expected kind of the darkness and and the 360-degree horizon and so forth, um, but I did not expect the, the sounds of nature responding to the absence of the light of the sun. All nature was responding to the light of the sun, whether it's presence or, in that case, it's diminished uh, presence hiding behind the moon. And then as, as the moon passed and the sun began to emerge and its light began to brighten the area again, the chorus stopped. The insects and the birds uh, ceased their singing, all in response to the light of the sun. In John's first letter, he wants us to know that the Christian life, all, all of life as believers, must be a response to the character of the God who is himself light. God is light. And who God is... As light, he's also love, another major theme in this letter, who God is should fundamentally shape who we are and how we live before his face. And the integrity that should exist between belief and behavior, faith and practice, profession and action should shape our integrity of life. It should shape how we handle our sin. What, what do you do with your sin, your sinful nature, your sinful actions? How do, we, how do we handle that in the light of God's holiness? And it should also give us humility and hope through Jesus, our great advocate. Let me give you just a little bit of the context of John's letter as far as we understand it. Uh, the Apostle John wrote this letter near the uh, end of the, of the first century, wrote it probably to the church in Ephesus where he had had served uh, kind of as the pastor of the church in Ephesus there. And as far as we can tell, false teachers had begun coming into the church and were leading them astray, both in doctrine as well as in morality, and it particularly had an impact on the way that they treated one another. There was a lack of love. Christian love was in a deficit. And so John wrote this letter to bring them back to apostolic truth, pointing to his own authority as an apostle, as one who was an eyewitness to Jesus, living with Jesus, walking with Jesus, seeing, hearing Jesus, even laying his hands upon Jesus. He's emphasizing the fact that he is an eyewitness to the very message that's being distorted by these false teachers. And so he's bringing them back to that apostolic authority and truth about Christ and then laying out the impact of that upon their lives and ours. 
And here he begins with the character of God and then draws out the, the so what, the consequence of that from there. He does this in six conditional statements, if this, then that, kind of contrasting, going back and forth, negative and positive with one another, a contrasting error with truth. All of it driving towards chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 with this focus on Jesus, our advocate, the, the solution, the answer to what we do with our sin. We go to Jesus. So let's look first at how God's holiness, his character, uh, impacts the Christian life. Notice in verse 5, John says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. John is summarizing in, in one word the message that he heard from Jesus, which is Maybe hard to do. How do you summarize all that Jesus taught? And John, John chooses this one word to communicate clearly and simply to us the message of the gospel and, and unpacks it from there. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. It's, it's a double negative. It's a way of emphasizing there's none, none at all, no sin in God. He is pure light. Light is a metaphor here for purity, for moral purity. God never sins. He cannot lie. He cannot say one thing and do another. He is morally pure. He is light. It's also a, a metaphor for God's intellectual purity, that God is truth. There is no error in God. He, he cannot uh, lead astray. He cannot deceive anyone. Everything that he says is good and true, totally pure, morally, and with regard to truth. As we sang in the opening hymn, he is holy, holy, holy. Uh, the emphasis coming from the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his throne in the temple and the angels surrounding him singing, holy, 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 the only attribute of God that is ever repeated three times in a row. He is perfect, perfect, perfect. He is pure, 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 as in radiant, uncreated light. Were you to look at him in his holiness directly, uh, you couldn't stand it. It's like going to uh, the eye doctor and they have to, I, I went last week and had my eyes dilated and then the doctor uh, shone a light directly into my eye, and it was very brief. I appreciated that. He's looking behind to see the, the health of the eye, but you can only stand it for just a little bit. How much more God in his holiness? Brightness of uncreated light. You can't, you can't look at it. It's so pure. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Notice how John moves then from who God is to how we ought to live, who we should be. Namely, that we should live with in integrity. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There, there should be a fundamental integrity, a one-to-one, -one, if you will, correspondence between what we believe and how we live. Not to say that all will be perfect or that we'll always do that right. This passage assumes that we won't and gives us an answer for that. But in general, there ought to be a 
visible, noticeable impact upon your life coming from what you believe about who God is. And so John says, if you claim, you make this claim to have fellowship with God, to have closeness of relationship with God, to live with him in in communion with God, and then your life is characterized by darkness, living in known sin, a lack of repentance, a hardness of heart, callousness towards God's word and the promptings of the Holy Spirit to convict you of, of sin. You know what's right, but you don't do it. And yet you claim to have fellowship with God. John says, one of these things is not like the other. There's a problem. There's a disconnect. Our lives ought to be shaped by integrity between our faith and our practice, our belief and our actions. And so he says, if those uh, among you claim closest with God, but their lives say something different, there ought to be some healthy self-examination there. Look at your own life in the light of who God is and who he calls you to be. And if there's a sharp discontinuity there, of course, you're not, you're not holy like God is. But if you belong to Jesus, you're called to live in that direction. You're called to humble yourself, to walk in repentance, and to live in a way that pleases the Lord. Depending upon his grace, asking forgiveness when you fail, but there ought to be some integrity between what we believe and how we live. You might think about it this way. If you're living comfortably with sin, you need to examine your claim to closeness with God because he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The heart of that self-examination then is what we do has to do with how we handle, rather, our sin. I don't know if you caught this. Uh, I'm sure you did in in verse 8 and again in verse 10 and then again in chapter 2, verse 1, um, really from uh, verse 7 on through the end of the the passage for this morning. uh, There's this emphasis on what we do with our sin, how we handle our sin, how we think about our sin, what what we do with it. Uh, And there seem to be two errors that were going on in John's day that are still with us now. Uh, nothing, nothing new under the sun. Notice verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. This seems to be uh, a denial of just general sinfulness of man. Uh, perhaps, you know, we, we hear today people are just basically good. All people are basically good-natured. Sin is not really a problem that affects us down to the core of of who we are. This is a common view of humanity, uh, not based upon the Bible. Just people are generally good. You can expect the best from people. And we still haven't learned that that's fundamentally not true. Uh, we, we look at the evil in the world, and we somehow think that that is an exception to human nature. When the reality is, as the Bible teaches, there is none good, not one that sin has reached into the inner depths of our hearts and affects everything that we do, everything that we think, all the things that we love. Sin has an impact on all of that. And here you had people in the first century saying, we're really not that bad. There's really no problem of sin that we have in our hearts. People are generally basically good. 
You think about in our own day how this shows up. Uh, people deny the problem of sin. They deny uh, the problem of a sinful nature. Think about the ways that people talk about sin. We, we don't talk about sin in relation to a holy God. Maybe we talk about sin in relation to ourselves, how, how things make us feel, um, how, how offended we may be by somebody else's actions. And, and we stop thinking about and stop talking about sin in terms of how sin offends a holy God, which is the most basic thing that we should be able to say about sin, that sin has to do with God. And yet all around us are denials of sin's corruption in our own hearts. And the church is not immune from this. Uh, maybe we're not denying sinfulness, uh, but we often gloss over it or um, don't accept the fact that we still struggle with the corruption of our own hearts, even if we have been redeemed and forgiven by Christ, uh, that we still struggle with that. Notice, secondly, in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This seems to be not so much a denial of sinfulness as just a redefinition of sin. Um, every, well, I won't say that. Well, I will. Uh, this, this seems to be maybe a common uh, ability among um, if, if a public figure is caught in something wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. It's a denial of sinful actions, um, a denial that we've done anything that merits any kind of displeasure or disapproval. We relegate sin to the minor things in life rather than seeing that sin affects everything that we do. Uh, we have a hard time admitting that we are wrong. We have a hard time asking for forgiveness and seeking forgiveness from others. And yet notice here what we miss out on. If we deny sinfulness or if we deny that we have sinned, if we're unwilling to say, I've done something wrong against God and against you. Notice that there's deceitfulness involved. And then more importantly, confession of sin is what leads to forgiveness of sin. Being kind of stuck in the mud and saying, there is no sin, I have not sinned, cuts us off from the very avenue of God's grace that we need for our sin. The way to forgiveness, the way to being cleansed of sin is by open acknowledgement of sin, by taking responsibility, not shifting the blame, not moving the goalpost, goal uh, not overemphasizing sin's power and underemphasizing the Holy Spirit's power, but rather openly acknowledging our sin, that we are deeply flawed in our hearts and in our actions, and believing these promises, that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, this is the maybe counterintuitive aspect of seeing our lives in light of God's holiness. We see God's holiness. We see that we fall short of it, that, that none of us is perfect, that we are way far away from the standard that God has set for us. 
And that poses a dilemma for us. Either we will minimize, deny our sin and say everything is okay so I can live with God in fellowship without dealing with my sin, or we're driven to despair because we see how holy God is and how high his standard is and that we cannot meet it. And yet John doesn't fall in either of those two traps. Rather, he calls us to honesty about our sin, acknowledging it, confessing it, not denying it or sweeping it under the rug, rather, but calling us to honesty so that we can receive hope and forgiveness in Jesus, our advocate. Notice the first two verses of chapter 2 and his focus here. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You kind of feel those two things together in tension a little bit. John's saying, I'm writing this so that you won't sin. And, and how do you respond to that? Well, maybe I want to deny that I have sinned, or I want to deny that I am sinful and have a problem. He's saying that's the goal that God calls us not to sin. But then at the same time, he joins that with this word of grace. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so it calls us to humility, that there's this goal, don't sin, but also hope. Because when we do sin, we have a faithful Savior in Jesus. Jesus here is called the advocate and the propitiation for our sins. As our advocate, he, he pleads our case before the Father. Not as though the Father is reluctant or unwilling, but that the Father is willing to receive what Jesus has done in our place. Jesus pleads his own righteousness. He's a righteous advocate. So in this sense, he's somewhat different than you know, maybe just a normal defense attorney whose client may be guilty or may not be guilty, and the defense attorney has to figure out a way to best defend his client. In our case, we're guilty. <laughs> There's no question about it. There's no hiding of that. The father is not unaware that we are guilty, but we have a substitute in Jesus Christ the righteous. And so when Jesus pleads our case before the father, he does not point to you and say, Look how hard they are trying. Look how much better they are than so-and-so. Jesus points to himself and says, I have done all things well, and they are in me. I have done everything perfectly, and they are united to me by faith. What's mine belongs to them. My righteousness is their righteousness. My death counts for them and covers over their sin and cleanses their sin. Jesus pleads again and again, his own work, his own life before the Father's throne, even in the worst of sins for the Christian. Jesus is pleading on your behalf, never stopping. His righteousness covers over our sin. He is our advocate. His sacrifice satisfies God's justice. He is our propitiation. That's a big old word. Uh, it's an important word. It's, it's a Bible word. It's the way the Old Testament sacrifices are described, particularly the one sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. 
In the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, a substitute was provided for the sins of the people. Um, a goat whose blood would be shed, another goat, goat who would be sent out into the wilderness. And the sins of the people was confessed upon those goats, uh, transferred to these substitutes. The one goat was sent outside the camp into the wilderness to die. It's a picture of hell. Uh, separation from the camp, from the presence of God. Sin and guilt was removed in that goat as the representative of the people of God. And the other goat was killed. Its blood shed for the forgiveness of sin so that the penalty deserved for sin was placed upon another. And in that way, the very thing that divided the people from God, that separated them, that alienated them from God, was removed, completely done away with. And God's favor and love was restored to them through the satisfaction of justice. See, this is the wonderful thing, the mysterious thing about the gospel. In the gospel, the Father does not ignore sin he doesn't write it off as not that big of a deal. Uh, he doesn't choose to just excuse it in any old way or sweep it under the rug. Rather, in the gospel, the Father deals fully with our sin, fully satisfying his own justice and his own wrath towards sin in Jesus at the cross so that through Jesus we might receive mercy, we might receive forgiveness, and God can remain holy and just, while at the same time gracious and merciful toward all those who come to Jesus. The very thing that alienates us from God that we can't overcome on our own, God does for us in Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins, which means for us, Jesus is the total package. All that God requires of us, he has given to us freely as a gift in Jesus Christ, his righteousness covers over us. His death satisfies divine justice to the fullest so that the Father delights over his people with joy. Perhaps many of you live with this kind of low-level simmering expectation that God is only kind of slightly pleased with you. He, he's, he's okay with you. He likes you a little bit, but he knows that you're going to mess up. He knows that you're going to stumble. He knows that you're not going to live up to all your potential, all that he requires of you. And so he's just, he's, he's okay with you, but he's not really happy with you. He's, he doesn't have much joy or delight in you. And the good news of propitiation, if we can put it that way, good news of propitiation is that all of God's justice for sin has been put on Jesus, fully satisfied. You are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith in his name and the same love that the Father has for the Son, the same delight that the Father from all eternity has had in his own beloved Son is yours if you are in Jesus the Advocate through faith. The Father's love is yours in a way that cannot ever be removed, which is why John says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, 
the righteous, which is why John can say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which is why John can say the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. God has not come to you halfway and is now waiting for you to come the other half to do your part. He's done it all for you in Jesus and bids you, welcomes you, calls you to receive it all as a gift so that when you sin, you don't deny it, you don't sweep it under the rug, you don't excuse it away, but you know that the Father has given you the Son and has called you to find in him a righteous advocate for the undeserving. This ought to produce in us humility and hope. And to remind us that perhaps one reason among many why we minimize or deny our sin is that we often don't really believe that God will forgive us. We think there's a catch. There's some part two that we're not getting that maybe others are informed about, but we've missed. And we're not really convinced that the good news is really all that good, that the grace of God for sinners is is enough. And so he has to remind us through the word, through the Lord's table. Jesus has done it all. There's forgiveness for sinners. There's, there's grace for all who come to Jesus, and nothing remains to be done except to receive what Christ has done in our place. What should we do with this? Let me give you just a few points of application as we prepare to come to the table. What do you do with conviction when you know that you have sinned? John encourages us to learn to confess our sin to God and to others quickly and regularly. That ought to be the normal habit of the Christian life, a humble confession of our sin and embracing of the grace of God in Jesus Christ for us. Learn to confess your sin to God and to others quickly and regularly. Also, believe that in Christ you are cleansed from all sin because that's what the scripture says. You have an advocate who has done it all and who continues to plead for you even when you knowingly sin. And then let's not gloss over chapter 2, verse 1. John wrote these things so that we may not sin. Try not to sin. (laughs) Try to live in a way that that pleases God. Sometimes we're just comfortable with sin because we feel like, well, this is what it's going to be like until Jesus comes back or I go to him and we become comfortable with it and we don't strive against it. And John is telling us, The goal is for you not to sin. Try to live in a way that pleases God. When you sin, go to Jesus, but try to not sin, uh, relying upon the grace of Jesus given by the Holy Spirit. In the Lord's Supper, we are visibly, tangibly, we taste, we're reminded that Christ died for us called to believe it and to find assurance in the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And as we are assured of that, called to go forth and to live in a way that honors him, that has a fundamental integrity between our faith and our practice, that honestly handles our sin humbly and yet with hope because Jesus is our advocate. Would you pray with me?